Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks again for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. Today, NDP MPP Saul Mamakwa, who has questioned the sincerity of Justin Trudeau leading into the first day of National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. How does he feel knowing of the trip to Tofino happened and subsequent to a Justin Trudeau explanation slash apology? Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star, our visit about who's in the driver's seat to challenge Doug Ford in the provincial election. And we'll talk about Chief Medical Officer of Healthcare and more and guidance for Thanksgiving and a few weeks from now, Halloween. Are people still listening or are we all way, way tuned out? We'll talk about that also on the podcast. Let's get to Stephen Del Duca, liberal leader, who is the subject of these attack ads so far from Premier Doug Ford. And Sri Paradkar will join us as well from the Toronto Star. It's been a dangerous place to be a journalist covering the federal election. We're hoping that something changes before the next provincial election, but it's unacceptable. Too much online hate, too much, too many online threats. Is there a simple solution for it, or is it a lot more complex? It's all coming up in the Toronto Today podcast. Justin Trudeau apologized yesterday. There wasn't much of an explanation. Look, I don't know uh, how it came to this, uh, that he decided to go where he went when he went uh, on Thursday. Um, but we said it on Friday's show. You can go in the evening, but you got to be there and representing that day. You got to accept an invitation. Doesn't you, you? This isn't a case where you can finish your homework the night before and then get free time. Okay, this isn't elementary school. This was a massively important day. And guess what? You're a big part of why the day was created. You're the first prime minister to to provide a national uh, day of truth and reconciliation. To not show up. It just seemed obvious it was disrespectful. And I'm not sure we thought we were getting an apology. I want to bring on Asal Mamakwa, uh, NDP MPP, and uh, have him weigh in on a few other issues as well. Not just that, obviously, of, uh, of First Nations people, because Saul's got some depth uh, depth for years. Uh, it's great to have you on the show. I always enjoy our conversations. Thanks for making the time. Miigwech. Uh, thank you for having me, Greg. Were you surprised that an apology came? And did it matter it came on Wednesday and not you know, Friday or Saturday, when he quite obviously realized that maybe he did something he shouldn't have done, Saul? You know, I think uh, certainly apology was um, was needed, but I think it's uh, more important to apologize in person to Chief Kashmir, but also uh, to the, uh, you know, uh, to survivors, but also uh, their families and uh, overall uh, Indigenous people across Canada, because, you know, uh, you know, apologies uh, uh, are starting to mean nothing to me uh, when there is no action behind these apologies. It's just uh, so important that we, uh, you know, we he acknowledges that and uh, when he's in front of the media. I wondered about that. And, and I know you and I talked earlier in the summer and we talked about words versus actions. And, and we all can look, we all can put up a good front and say the right things. And, and we can wear the orange shirt and we can talk a good game. It's a what are we doing in our neighborhood? What are we doing um, you know, in our school community? What are we doing in the workplace? Those are the big things that are going to force change, aren't they? Yes, uh, there is certainly a wokeness. And Canadians across the country about uh, uh, the children, Indigenous children that went to Indian residential school that never came home. And uh, we are still seeing the impacts of the intergenerational trauma of Indigenous people across the country. And I think, uh, you know, I always talk about, uh, you know, uh, there's always room for improvement. 
And I think the biggest room in the world is a room for improvement. And I think uh, when we talk about reconciliation, uh, we need to be able to uh, uh, either you have, uh, you know, uh, both, uh, uh, you can't sit on a fence. You, on reconciliation, you have to be either, uh, um, you know, in the room of the reconciliation. Have we set? Have we been set back by this? Have we rewound the clocks uh, and lost progress because of what happened Thursday with the prime minister not being accountable and not going um, to to uh, you know to to meet and not and going to Tofino instead? Have we gone backwards instead of staying in neutral, Saul? You know, um, maybe not backwards, but it's almost like a certain like a, a certain direction that you're going. Like you're going in this different road towards uh, the road of reconciliation. And I think what he did was certainly a genuine utter lack of respect for the children, the survivors, the families, especially on (laughs) the very first day of, uh, you know, National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. And that's really, you know, um, so important, uh, completely uh, ignorant. And I think, uh, you know, (laughs) the gloves are off with his phoniness. Saul Mamakwa, our guest, uh, NDP MPP, um, joining us on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Um, yeah, I, I, you you put the tweet out a couple days ago. How serious are you towards Justin Trudeau? How serious are you about reconciliation and your important relationship with Indigenous peoples? I'm all for teachable moments. Are you hopeful? Are you hopeful people can get to him in his inner circle and say there has to be more of a commitment? If anything, as I said out of the gate, for better or worse, Saul, people will give credit to the prime minister for the fact that we're a lot more advanced than we were in these causes than under Stephen Harper, but it's got to be dealt with by actions and not words. Yes, uh, most definitely. I think uh, what happened there, uh, you know, on the on the National Day of Truth Reconciliation, just uh, just another punch to the stomach, right? And uh, and it uh, hurts survivors. And um, we need to be able to uh, move forward uh, as a collective, you know, as uh, as Canadians, as Ontarians, to make sure we move forward and uh, together in the path of reconciliation. Because, uh, as he says, you know, uh, no relationship is important uh, to me and to Canada than the one with Indigenous people. And when you take that action, that's not, you know, it's just difficult to be able to believe that. And I think that's why I uh, mm. I asked that question about reconciliation and. You know, when you leave, uh, you know, uh, don't participate in some of the events. But I think, uh, again, I'm uh, always hopeful for change, you know, not just uh, uh, not but for Canadians. But as an Indigenous person, like uh, I'm always hopeful, but but still like we need a lot of work needs to be done when we actually start looking at uh, significant investments of the calls, 94 calls to action uh, from the TRC. Apologies and politics are tricky things. Like I said, I, I I don't feel that. Yeah, I wouldn't want to see him throw a staff member under the bus. I think there's. You can imagine in any company with your staff, let alone there's got to be 
public conversations and there's got to be private conversations. But at the same time, you, you went through something very public in the summer where, um, you know, the, the premier, I, I won't go into all the details, but the premier of the province accused you of something that was ridiculous and ludicrous and unfair. And, and I got viscerally angry about it. I'm, I'm only I can only imagine that was one one hundredth of what you felt but he called you what, what like what, what's what's understood about that and what's not should he should he have done what justin trudeau did and got in front of a microphone as opposed to just a private phone call yeah i think uh it, it should have been uh you know a public apology it should be a public apology and uh you know like how many apologies are needed for indigenous people when we talk about uh access to clean drinking water you know like i have uh in my writing of in Kiwetnuk, I have 14 long-term boil water advisories, oh. and uh, and you know uh, when he had made a commitment that he would address those uh, boil water advisories, and he uh, again apologized for that. But we cannot keep on uh, hearing these apologies, and uh, we again we need actions. I want to ask you something. I want to pivot to this because I, I think it's important and, and you are an advocate for something really important. Um, Calvin Bossano is a grade nine student in Sault Ste. Marie. He goes to a school called White Pines and uh, and he made a video uh, because he wouldn't stand for the national anthem. And he said the teacher told him you, you had a conversation with him personally. The teacher told him if you if you stand for O Canada, there's a better chance you'll, you know, quote unquote, get your land back. This is something where I probably, you know, it's a teachable moment for someone like me, a white guy. Ten years ago, I would have said, nah, if you're in Canada, you know, you should stand for the national anthem. I got a better understanding as to why people don't. I have a better understanding of why we have to have more uh, of a conversation and, and an understanding together about it. Tell me about the story about getting in touch with Kelvin and tell our listeners the conversation you had with him and, and why he felt so brave to do this. Yeah, uh, he had reached out to me uh, uh, last week, and uh, regarding uh, O Canada, that it's, uh, it's a policy where provincial schools have these uh, 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 the national anthem sung, and I think uh, he felt uh, that he didn't need to stand because of the the lost children that we keep on seeing uh, being located across the country, and um, and his dad reached out to me too that he supports him in any way. Uh, that he uh, can and yeah it's uh, uh, at that time uh, he had told me uh, I asked him why, why he was shaking his head in the video and um, so he had also talked about that the teacher had told him to uh, uh, stand up and uh, so that's kind of like uh, how it happened and I think uh, there are other students that have reached out to me uh, not just in Ontario but across uh, you know across Canada just you know they're starting to and not stand up for Canada, and it's just uh, you know the treatment of uh, the the colonial uh, oppressive policies that are there. When we talk about uh, um, when we talk about access to services for uh, cure, uh, for Indigenous people, when we talk about uh, overrepresentation of you know of Indigenous people in the in the uh, the child welfare system, and even the uh, you know overrepresentation of Indigenous people and in, uh, a correction system and uh you know access to education access to healthcare like there's that's how oppression and colonialism works well and it's it reminds me in you you can imagine growing up in ontario my my whole life we used to uh, be asked to stand for the lord's prayer and i was someone who always did i'm not very religious and i haven't been from a certain age um but there was a there was a kid in seventh grade for me who declined to stand for it and you know he got in trouble he got sent to the principal's office i look at that and i go 
I like the idea that requirement could be something that be, could be deemed as offensive. I, I hope we've evolved those opinions and, and have more of a live and let live. He's not causing some kind of disturbance. He's not yelling and standing on top of his desk. He's declining to stand. It's it's it, those are two totally different things. I think we've got to get that. Yes, I, and I think that's uh, what people don't understand. Like I know, uh, I mean, uh, obviously, every like, example is uh, uh, here at the provincial legislature. Like they do uh, first Monday of each month, uh, they do O Canada and the Royal Anthem, and I, I go in there and I sit down. And I know it's kind of scary when you first do it, but mm-hmm. I think uh, people don't understand, uh, you know, why we do it, why they do it, because again, it's uh, you know why should we stand for uh, O Canada? Because, you know, uh, I see, uh, you know, like uh, I see kids cry and, uh, you know, like nine years old and all they want is access to clean, chewy water and nobody is doing anything about it. And, uh, you know, like time and time again, I ask for clean, chewy water from this government in Ontario and they don't do it. Uh, And they, they talk about uh, jurisdictional, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, ambiguity and uh, playing the jurisdictional ping pong on the health and the lives of these uh, children in Ontario and uh, mm. you know this other Ontario, this other Canada, because it's just uh, that's I see it, I live it. Yeah, and we shouldn't we shouldn't be having to we should have one Canada, not two, not three, not four. Saul, so I really enjoy our conversations. Thanks very much for uh, bringing some of these issues to light, weighing in as well on uh, on what was an important uh, um, an important moment last Thursday. That I, I hope we have uh, I hope we have a lot more. Um, how would I put it? Unanimity in what we should do and the things we should be talking about and and doing and not doing next year at this time. But a lot to do before then. Thank you for the time. Be great, sir, Greg. Uh, Saul Mamakwa, MPP uh, from the New Democratic Party. Five years ago was the revelation of the Trump Access Hollywood tape. I I will not forget where I was. I'm sitting there. I actually think I was watching some kind of baseball playoff game. In fact, the Jays may have played the Texas Rangers that day. It's 2016. So they may have just started that series. And my wife and I are sitting there watching, waiting for it to happen. And I'm like, oh, God, like there's a debate Sunday night. He's finished. <laughs> I'm really glad I didn't tweet that. I mean, I've had some bad tweets. I've really, I've had some un, very way off bad takes, but Trump's finished politically after the Access Hollywood tape. But it was Billy Bush that was finished. All that guy did was ask for a hug when he got off a bus and he called him the Donald and he laughed at some horribly misogynistic statements. Okay, I guess that's pretty bad. Bruce Arthur joins us now from the uh, Toronto Star. How about that? You like is that was that a where were you moment? Do you remember the Access Hollywood tape when you first watched it? I think I was covering the Jays playoff <laughs> series if I remember it, but it was the thing is, I don't remember it as a thunderbolt moment because there were just so many things, right? Trump was kind of the apex of the outrage politician and Rob Ford I still will maintain was the best example of how to prepare for this where by the time something had happened that made you go oh my god this is a hugely damaging controversial whatever it is um if by the time someone had written a story about that two hours later another thing had happened right and another thing and another thing and with trump i think a lot of the underpinnings of what we think matters to people probably doesn't apply anymore and I think he probably, of all the awful things he did, he did bring that into light. 
But it's weird. Like in 2016, as he's running for office, it felt like the terrible things really did start when he got into the White House. Here's the Muslim ban. Here's that. Here's, you know, we're thinking about rolling back these rights for women. Whereas I'm just like, he he painted that that weekend. They had a Sunday night debate. This came out Friday. And I, he, one of his first moves to deflect attention, as I'm looking this up, is saying Bill Clinton had, quote, said far worse to me on the golf course. And I'm like, that's probably true. That's probably pretty accurate, to be honest. Well, and, and the thing with that is it, it's, a, it's, an, it's a destruction of the niceties, right? And I'm not saying that in a complimentary way. No. But, uh, but it's, it's a destruction of the idea of any kind of, like, polite engagement. And, I mean, I, I will say this. I've said the pandemic is a mirror lots of times because it is. It shows us what systems we care about, what we don't, how we react to the stresses involved individually, all those things. Trump was a mirror, too. Right. Like Trump kind of let you know what you actually cared enough enough to to it, politically and personally, I think, because he's just one of the worst people that there ever was. Like there's pretty much no redeeming qualities to him other than the fact that he routinely humiliated Chris Christie. That was it. And in the end, the Access Hollywood tape was kind of only the beginning. Right. Exactly that. Exactly that. Um, and two things didn't come about from the Access Hollywood tape. One is the uh, this didn't become a colloquialism for trying to, um, you know, get somebody to date you. I'll show you where they have some nice furniture that didn't catch on. And the second one was Tic Tacs. It, it didn't sink Tic Tacs stock. They must have been like, oh, God, not like why not certs or Clorets or so? why did it have to be us? Why did Tic Tacs come out of his mouth when he started talking about grabbing and kissing people? That company survived. Happy for the Tic Tacs, folks. Well, again, this is life in an attention economy, right? Where there's like, think about what you can do when you open up your computer this morning and all the different things you can consume. Right. All the different pieces of information, even if you're only looking at the news, there's so much happening that like if one really bad guy says one really bad thing about one kind of mediocre candy, I'm going to be honest about Tic Tacs. <laughs> um, but if one person does that, then it just gets lost in the wash. Right. Like a few things kind of grab onto your attention and stick in your brain. But for the most part, we're all just kind of swimming in this sea of occasionally toxic information. Bruce Arthur, Toronto Star, joining us. Um, we just had Stephen Del Duca on. I made note of the fact to him that he's the prominent feature in uh, Ford attack ads about policy. It's let's not go backwards to Kathleen Wynne. And I did bring it up to him. I said, this is the playbook. Justin Trudeau is out on the road uh, talking about Stephen Harper. Stephen Harper, he even misspoke and said, uh, if we, you know, that Steve, he was running against Stephen Harper. So it can happen. This is going to happen a ton, isn't it? With Doug Ford putting the words Kathleen Wynne in his mouth over and over again. It's probably effective. So he's going to do it. It's something Del Duca has to be ready for, doesn't he? Well, sure. I mean, here's the difference between the provincial and the federal election campaigns, probably. I mean, I guess we're going to see. But at least with the like the liberals ran against Harper, they ran against the idea of what conservatives are, partly because Aaron O'Toole still hadn't really been fixed in the public imagination as to who he was because he changes all the time. Um, but they also had concrete policy proposals like over and over. You saw this is what we're going to do on climate on housing, uh, on vaccine mandates, which they did yesterday. Like they, they had a bunch of policies, which actually when graded out were the best policies in the election. It happened over and over. I'm not sure what policies the provincial conservatives are 
Like, I'm not sure what mm. they're going to say we did really well. Like, the stuff before the pandemic, Doug Ford was at 25% before the pandemic started. <clears throat> and then he went on TV every day, and for a while it worked. But these guys dragged out a pandemic and really conducted it incompetently. We've talked about this a lot of times. Yeah. For so long. And I, I think they're probably going to count on people forgetting. But the fact that they went with this slogan, that we are the party of yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Could, could we get a recording of the staff meeting where that was brought up, where it was worked through from beginning to end, where at the end they said, that's the best we can do. That is definitely something that nobody can easily attack by pointing out that we refused proper restrictions, that we refused paid sick leave, that we every time we said yes, we said no first. Like, this stuff seems pretty grade school, but I think they're counting on a collective amnesia, to be honest, and on the weakness of their opponents. And that's where attacking Del Duca, again, a guy who is closely connected to Kathleen Wynn, who Mm -hmm. Ontario was done with by the end. That's why you go with that to start because what else are they going to run on? Yes, we can. You know, yes, we closed golf courses, tennis uh, courts and pickleball for five weeks when the weather got nice, whether you were fully vaccinated or not. Yes, we were the only jurisdiction in North America or the planet uh, to do these things. The one thing I I do, the the one thing I do look at that they may be able to say, and you're right, because we pivot so fast. You know, we remember something that that might have happened yesterday and we can't from two weeks ago is they'll say, hey, everybody, hey, guys, girls, the fourth wave wasn't so bad as many predicted. But guess what? I mean, they can try and take credit for that. We should take credit. You, me, the listeners, we should take credit. We got vaccinated. We learned how to risk mitigate. We're our own chief medical officers of health. There's a reason why it's going well right now. And we should look in the mirror. It's not government policy. Well, and it's, it's, I mean, if you want to have an inflection point for the entire fourth wave of the pandemic, it must have happened sometime in the summer when they decided not to open up further, right? Mm-hmm. What Alberta did is it wasn't just that they, really, they removed the restrictions, but they signaled pandemics over, go do what you want, even though people were saying, you know what, Delta's going to be a problem here. And in Ontario, if you remember back in the summer, there was a lot of signaling from this government that, you know, we're going to move to stage four. We're, I mean, we're probably going to do that. And I, I feel like if you want to give them credit for something, it's that they didn't screw it up. Is that someone talked this government out of trying to kind of follow their worst instincts. And instead of the equivalent of closing the playgrounds, which would have been opening everything up, this government just held fast and waited. And then, good, and luckily for them and luckily for us, and this is a tragic, awful thing to say, Alberta and Saskatchewan happened, right? Like that, that mm. has probably scared every other politician in the country straight because they mm. see what happens when the worst leadership is exercised. Like what's happening in, I mean, we're not even talking about what's happening in Saskatchewan. They have the equivalent. I think there was a doctor's tweet about this the other day, yesterday. Yeah. They have the equivalent of 950 people in the ICU. Yes. Right? Like it, it, it is a disaster there based on what they have. And Ontario right now is lucky as hell that it didn't go down that road. Just just the people on your street, the people you talk to, your work colleagues, your friends. The one thing I'm hearing over and over again, I I'm worried I might be yelling into a vortex here because I, I know I know it's different. What you and I do opinion stuff is different than what has to be in a newscast. It's different than what's on television. But all I hear, I see headlines. Will kids be able to go trick or treating in Ontario this Halloween? Can you invite Uncle Joe over for Thanksgiving? 
I would make the case that 98% of us are doing our own thing and we're trusting the science and the, it's maybe 2% that are waiting for Dr. Kieran Moore to tell them what to do or Dr. Eileen Davila. Do I have that right? I'm not sure it's that high, uh, to be honest. Like, I think that people do pay attention still to public health signaling to a degree because you can see changes in behavior based on big moments still in pandemics. Um, I will say this. When you have stuff like Halloween, I think if Kieran Moore wants to lose people, he will say no Halloween. (laughs) Yes. Honestly, I don't think he's going to say that. I think they lost a lot of people last Halloween because you could do it safely last year. Like Halloween's not a difficult thing to do. We knew then that being outside was safer. We knew then that if people just didn't congregate, right? Like if, if you didn't have like five kids on your street in your house at the end of the night, then you could have a pretty safe Halloween. And honestly, it, my kids went trick-or-treating last year. Good for I, you. Yeah. I, I thought it was, and, and, and I, there are people who kind of caricature me, which is a funny thing. Uh, the caricature <laughs> me is like the guy who always wanted more restrictions. No, I just wanted restrictions that worked, man. Like, I don't care about, like, we should have been able to do far more things with leveraging the outdoors. We should have done far more things in terms of making sure people could do things safely. But instead, we went with blunt tools in the province, and Halloween was one of them. There should be Halloween this year. People just need to know how Delta spreads. Don't Mm. stay too close to people. Halloween is literally the one thing all year where everyone should wear masks. So why don't we just do that? And I think that's going to happen. And I think the other thing is going to be with Thanksgiving is the idea, and Kieran Moore raised this earlier this week, the idea that if you're fully vaccinated, you can get together with people in your family indoors. And that's a big deal, man. It's a big deal for public health to say that. Yeah. Because that's where we're going to go. That's where the Ontario and the world has to go, is that if you are fully vaccinated, we're going to need to start actually living our lives again. And that's where the difference in, in, kinda, in guidance on Thanksgiving comes in. If you're fully vaccinated, you can maybe do it. If you're not, don't. That's it. That's just it. Uh, Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star. Yeah, that 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 video and those still images of you flying to Tokyo in a hazmat suit. Those have been photoshopped. I know that was actually my wife in the hazmat suit. That was that was uh, of great concern. Thanks very much for coming on, uh, and we'll talk soon. Have a great Thanksgiving weekend with your family. Brady, you too. Always my pleasure. Okay, as you imagine, as you might imagine, I encourage all forms of radio advertising. Um, there's some great ads. There's some ads that are a little. But either way, that was a yawn. Um, But attack ads for the Ontario provincial election are airing. I think they can be defined as that. And there's a lot of different methodologies, a lot of different philosophies about what works. If you've ever seen, there's been some great documentaries about what ads work in the United States election. And I know we're not the United States, but sometimes when elections come around, we see political ads that sort of, you know, they they get to that line. They get to that line where it, it becomes very personal. Of course, politics ends up uh, being personal because it, it just it's not just about policy. You want someone who leads, especially in a time like this. Character seems to matter. Character seems to matter a ton. And there have been attack ads aimed at our next guest uh, from the current premier and the progressive Conser- the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party. And that guest is Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca. Stephen, it is great to have you on. Thanks for making the time uh, for me, as always. I appreciate it. 
My pleasure, Greg. Thank you. So uh, it was I like this quote in the uh, Toronto Star on the story about this. There's only one thing in life worse than being talked about, and that's not being talked about. Uh, and that's from Oscar <laughs> Wilde in the picture of Dorian Gray. Um, does that suggest to you that it's almost like, yeah, it's it's flattery. Your party right now has seven seats. You need a seat. But Doug Ford seems to have you more in his crosshairs than Andrea Horvath. Does that say anything? Well, in fact, you know, just really quickly on that, Andrea Horvath started some online attack ads uh, directed at me last June. Doug Ford started his this past week. They both use the same line, uh, which is actually kind of comical if you if you ask me, and not particularly creative. But I think I think your listeners, Greg, are are, are aware of the fact that historically in politics, this is the playbook that <clears throat> most parties, most leaders will tend to follow. Their advisors will secretly tell them. Go after the other woman, go after the other man, make sure people understand why they are a bad choice. The default then will suggest that we're a good choice. And I get that. I've been around politics for a long time. I just Mm -hmm. I got to say, after the last 19 months that the people of Ontario have had where we are fatigued, we are beleaguered, we are tired. I have to believe that people are looking for something that's a bit more refreshing and a bit more interesting about where we go from here and not politics and campaigns that are run in the rearview mirror. And that seems to be what Doug wants to do and what Andrea wants to do. It's not why I'm in this fight. It's not what I'm going to be doing, but they've chosen their tactics. I'll choose mine and we'll let the voters decide. Robert Benzi uh, is the excellent uh, Queens Park Bureau chief, and he writes Del Duca, that's you, has said his party would not air attack ads targeting Ford or Horvath in the upcoming campaign. But does that doesn't mean you won't attack policy? Is that is there a difference between does that need a little more fleshing out in that you'll attack policy but won't attack person? Yeah, so for sure, we will be constructively critical of policies that both Doug Ford puts has put forward as premier and that Andrea Horvath would, I guess, propose to put forward. And throughout the pandemic, when Doug Ford's done something well, I've said it. When he's done something poorly, I've said it as well. And that's part of the job in a democracy. But again, I just. I think at this moment in Ontario's history, the old playbook has to be thrown out. I think if we're going to build a new normal, whether it's an education or the climate fight or economic dignity or, you know, traffic gridlock, whatever it is, we have to build that new normal with a new playbook based on what we've learned in particular during this pandemic. And so we are going to be starting some ads in the next little while. Uh, They're going to be positive. They're going to be forward looking. They're going to be ideas based. And I am I am determined and I am committed to make sure that that's how we go forward. I want to ask you about some current policy right now. I want to talk to you about schools. But but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the tone of the federal election. And I think we'd all agree. I hope that we would. We can't have some of what we saw in the campaign trail. We need to all turn the heat down a little bit. We need to all have an understanding that, you know, everyone's seeking the same goal here, especially coming out of COVID. We just have different methodology and policy to go there. Is that a fair statement? It's it's 100 percent a fair statement, statement, the divisiveness and the ugliness that we saw during the federal campaign. I actually believe uh, part of it's because people are exhausted. Part of it's also because our politics and the way it's been played for too long, including here in Ontario, including historically by liberals, including by me historically, is a playbook that we have to throw in the garbage and start new. I think there's greater space right now than ever before for more collaboration, more working across party lines. I've tried to do that during this pandemic. I think during a crisis, that's what people want to see. And again, that's why I'm stressing, go forward, positive, let's collaborate, and let's get outcomes for your listeners and people Mm -hmm. across Ontario. That's what they care about. 
Justin Trudeau utilized the name Stephen Harper a fair bit. He's not running against Stephen Harper. He was running uh, against Aaron O'Toole. I'm I'm sure you're ready in an election campaign that you will hear the name Kathleen Wynne. And for better or worse, that's something Doug Ford thinks clicks with voters. He was running against her actually in 2018. He's running against you in 2022, but he's going to utilize that. How will you be able to counter that and respond to it while still being respectful of somebody within your own party? Well, first of all, I mean, again, that just goes back to that. I'm going to keep using the phrase because it's so true. It's the same old playbook. I mean, look, for years, liberals talked about Mike Harris and now provincially and federally. uh, Mm -hmm. As you said, Justin Trudeau talked about Stephen Harper and now Doug Ford's going to talk about former Premier Wynn. and And yet we wonder why we don't seem, Greg, to be able to solve the big problems we face today and in the future. Maybe it's because all of our politicians have been driving, looking in the rearview mirror for far too long. So I want to try something different this time around. I'm proud of the work that I did while I served in cabinet. I think we were a good government. We weren't a perfect government. But here's a newsflash for Doug Ford. The people of Ontario rendered their judgment in June of 2018, and it was a tough judgment. That's part of democracy. I want to move forward. I want to build a new normal. I'm happy to work with other parties and other party leaders if that will help. But I'm mostly focused on the positive to go forward. And mm. the nearly 15 million people who call this province home and don't want partisanship, they want progress. Speaking of progress, Stephen Del Duca, Ontario Liberal Leader, joining us on Toronto today with Greg Brady on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. This is what I see on the ground. This is what I hear on the ground. Please tell me if uh, if I'm in a bubble and it's different for you. But the, the relationship with public health that the provincial government has, we know it's it's been troubling at times. We worry there's too much political influence towards the science table or towards Dr. David Williams or towards Dr. Kieran Moore. But what I hear from the vast majority of people, and especially we've talked about We've got a phenomenal vaccination rate. Delta hasn't taking hold. For the most part, maybe even in spite of policy, schools and education are going well five weeks in. But I see headlines and people talk to me about them on my street and where I go. Will kids be able to go trick-or-treating this Halloween? Well, I, I have a really simple answer. Are schools open? Okay, Halloween's open. We're having this, like, we're, we're, we shouldn't be hanging by a thread to decide what we should do for Thanksgiving. I'm not asking you to go against public health, but I think you know and I know the vast majority of people are risk mitigating on their own, and especially if they're fully vaccinated adults, they are. Yeah, I think that's true. If I'm not mistaken, we're supposed to hear an update from Dr. Kieran Moore today about what the guidelines or suggestions are, advice is for, for Halloween. It's coming up. My daughters are 13 and 10, and I know in particular uh, our 10-year-old is really looking forward to being able to trick-or-treat safely this year. So mm-hmm. I'll wait to hear what the guidance is from Dr. Kieran Moore, but I think you make a really good point. Look, Ontario's Compared to some other provinces, we're not in as tough shape, but we have to keep being vigilant and we have to keep driving up the vaccination rate. That's why we need a real vaccine certificate. It's why I strongly supported from the very beginning vaccine mandates in critical sectors, critical industries. And um, and I hope I'm sure the advice uh, will be good advice. I just really hope it's communicated clearly and that Doug Ford and his government consistently communicate the advice around Halloween and other things clearly because that's been one of my biggest constructive complaints throughout the pandemic, that their messaging has been very muddled and very confusing and reluctant. And that's made it harder for people to understand what they should be doing. So I look forward to hearing about Thanksgiving and Halloween. And, and hopefully, again, the message is very clear and people can grasp it quickly. 
I mentioned schools are, are going well. That's me saying that. Um, I, I think I, I hear from listeners who say, look, it really is as simple as this. We, we've moved past un, uh, you know cases as the full and complete judgment for how we're doing. Our kids under 18 in hospital due to COVID. Our kids in ICU due to COVID. So far, and this is all I get from, from who I talk to, so far, no. And that's great that that's the case. Do you have that same understanding? And would you say maybe even, yeah, in spite of itself, in spite of policies that have a lot of a lot of holes in them, school is going well? Yeah, I think I think the great news is that kids are not getting uh, very badly sick with COVID if they happen to contract COVID in the first case. But there's a couple of things to keep in mind. Number one, as a dad who's got one daughter who's under the age of 12 and not yet eligible to get the vaccine, what my wife and I are most keen to hear about, when the vaccines are deemed safe for our younger daughter and others like her below the age of 12, what's Doug Ford's plan to get that vaccine rolled out to those kids? I think he should be using schools as hubs mm-hmm. to get the vaccination. But we haven't heard anything about that. I think we all hope that the, the vaccines will be deemed safe and effective sooner rather than later. I've heard some suggest even before the end of October, maybe into early November. That's not that far away. So instead of waiting until the last second and kind of, you know, screwing it up, I'd rather have Doug Ford tell us like this week or next week, we've got the master plan. This is how we're going to do it in schools Mm -hmm. once uh, kids are are eligible to do it. But here's the other thing about schools. While the COVID numbers seem good, I am gravely concerned about ongoing mental health challenges, kids with special needs and learning gaps because of how tough last year was. That's why, Greg, I think there needs to be a hard cap on class sizes of 20 across the board. We need more teachers, more special needs professionals and mental health professionals in our schools to help our kids recover from how brutal last year was. And nobody knows right now how much catching up needs to be done because no one's even assessing it. And that's where I think we're missing a really, a really important opportunity. And we, we got to catch up on extracurriculars. And we also have yeah. to give kids and parents off ramps to say, hey, yeah. if my kid's in grade eight right now, can he have a graduation? When, right. when do people foresee school without, without a mask on? Because that's, you know, that's what's frying people out is the interminable nature of this and not knowing. We don't, Toronto's trying to get to 90%, but we don't know what happens when we get to 90%. And that's yeah, a problem. Exactly. Exactly. Um, 100% right. I got to leave it there. Thanks so much for the time today. I know we'll talk soon. Thanks, Greg. Take care. A well-known fact of the last federal election was that the volume was just turned up too high and there was a lot of debate about what should get covered and what shouldn't. Are you amplifying something to give it legitimacy or is that is it that old phrase sunlight's the best disinfectant? Let's get it out there and expose it for what it is. The headline in the star attacks on journalists show news media decisions uncovering the far right are also workplace safety decisions. I'm happy to bring on a race and gender columnist for the Toronto Star, Sri Paradkar. It's great to have you on. I'm a fan of your writing. Uh, thanks for making the time for me this morning. Oh, thank you for having me, Greg. Absolutely. It's one of those scenarios, isn't it, where um, we all saw this get amplified in the federal election. I I had Stephen Del Duca on last hour, and I said, you know, no matter which way this goes, no matter how we disagree on policy, how can we make sure in Ontario that we just turn down the temperature for all of us? Do you think we'll be able to do that, or do you worry more of the same is to come when we have our provincial election that we just saw, Shree? Oh, that's a good question. I don't have a crystal ball on that. It so much depends on who needs to win and who's the person behind the scenes helping them. Uh, because we do have certain actors in the political scene that 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 are known to have this kind of uh, ratcheting up the divisiveness factor. So I think that's, that's what I would be watching for, that who are the mm. campaign managers behind the scenes. 
much more than who the candidates are. Uh, but should we be ratcheting it down? Uh, certainly, because there is no reason for us to... We, we are divided, so all societies are divided. By nature, societies are divided. We yeah. don't all think the same. Uh, but there is no reason for us to get violent about differences of opinion. And that's where I worry we are headed towards. I'm going to get to the specifics of attacks on journalists in a second. When the federal election begins, Shri, do you look and say, we're in for a rough ride here? Uh, people are fried from the pandemic. People are, are, you know, they're either suffering in terms of circumstance, maybe because of lockdowns, or there's some that felt they never should have been locked down as harshly anyway. Either way, I think we can all agree we've had our moments in our own households where our nerves get frayed and, and we need to count to 10. Did you worry in the federal election campaign that it would be as bad as it was? Um, sorry, that was my cat, if you heard a big sound. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, did I worry? Now, what I worried about was we've always known that there was this uh, faction of people who were... Uh, genuinely hurt by the lockdowns, you know, financially and other ways, uh, maybe even psychologically, genuinely hurt. And there are those who just think it's all a hoax. Now, I think all of us, none of us here want a lockdown, right? None of us is happy sitting at home uh, when we could rather be going out. But we recognize that it is what is required for those of us who have the privilege to be able to stay at home and work. We, if we can do that, then that's doing our bit, right? That's our call to duty. Now there is a small faction among all of us who wants to go and make a violent case about it. And they have conflated the conspiracy of lockdown with a conspiracy that vaccinations are a fraud, with a global conspiracy of, you know, I don't know whether it's, you know, eating children or whatever the, uh, whatever the conspiracies want to say. The point is, there's always been a crazy element, the tinfoil hat-wearing element in society. It's getting too much oxygen right now. We, we gave it so much coverage in media, like as if it was something serious. It's one thing to say, hey, there is, look at this, haha, look at these crazy people, they say the earth is flat. Yeah. We all know the earth is not flat, right? And then you put it in its place by either just the tone in which you talk about it, or then if you think it's serious enough, you always make sure that you have the facts attached to it. But, you know, the kind of imagery that we had, we had all these people who are protesting, and it doesn't have to be, it can be a one-off coverage. We don't have to amplify and make it seem like it is bigger than it really is. Sri Paradkar, our guest, uh, joining us from the Toronto Star. I think two things about what you said there as I was as I was processing it. One, I think the Internet's led to a tremendous amount of this, tremendous amount of this. The second point I would make, not even not even pushing back on what you said, but pre-Internet, there was I, I was a U.S. politics major. So there was a gentleman named David Duke, who was a former member of the Ku Klux Klan, and he ran for U.S. Senate in Louisiana. Now, a lot of the national coverage was so embarrassing to the concept of voting for a former in 1990 for a former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan that I actually think some of the amplification prevented him from getting elected. I don't know how to link that with with Maxime Bernier here because there were two ways to cover Bernier. One was the pure data. What's going on with the numbers? And the other is, well, what's his message? Tell me what he's about. It's a struggle, right? Because you do have to talk practically about the numbers. And is he siphoning votes away from Aaron O'Toole? Are they doing better or worse than last election? But then there's then there's the message itself. And I know how problematic that is. I struggled with it even on this radio show. What to say and what not to. Mm, that's a that's a good one. 
See, the, the problem with numbers uh, before the election is it's all conjecture. We don't know where those numbers are coming from. You don't know if it's coming from Erin O'Toole. You don't know if it's coming from the Greens. So uh, I would do away with the numbers game because, because it begets more numbers. The more you say, hey, look at this guy. He has all these followers. Then he's going to get more because it makes him seem legitimate. Uh, in terms of his ideas, I really think we know what to do. We did it with Donald Trump after January 6th, a little too late. But everything Donald Trump said after January 6th came attached with a lot of facts. Trump said this, but reality is this. Mm. And that's, that is our job because we are not mere stenographers. Mm. These politicians have social media where they can amplify what they want the way they want. That's not our job to be mute uh, amplifiers, right? We can say these are the facts. He says it's raining, but let's open the window and it's not raining. I got about 60 seconds, but I want to ask you, what do we do? Is there an easy answer to protecting journalists, protecting female journalists, protecting female journalists of color? I know I, I you know, I, I know I get my own, but I know it's not as bad as most women. And I know it's not as bad as most women of color. I'm, you know, I, I, I'm not a spring chicken. I know it gravitates and elevates up like a pyramid and it gets worse depending on who you are. What's what's the solution? So, yeah, I, you know, there's no 60-second solution, unfortunately. Yeah. But, uh, but there is, I think the first thing that you have to do, or anybody, any organization has to do, is when they're journalists, whether they're an employee or a freelance, is, um, is slammed by um, abuse, is to take care of that journalist, which means you offer them some paid time off, which means you offer them mental health support, which means you make sure that if they want, somebody goes through their emails and their social media feed so they don't have to face that which means uh, the organization be there to file police complaints, be there with them because they are battling feelings of uh, being, you know, they, they think they're frauds. They think it's not a big deal because that's what society has told people to believe, you know, told women especially, oh, it's not a big deal. You're mm -hmm. making a big deal out of nothing. So be there to tell them it's okay for them to feel attacked. Um, and so these are all things to do after. But I think a bigger thing that media can do is focus on, how do we, how are we covering these issues? What, wh whose voices are we amplifying? You all had an example of, at your organization, was it, of um, Supriya Vivedi, sure. who also faced this kind, of, this kind of violence that she felt was also, being, was also coming because there were certain ideas being amplified, which, which belittled what she was saying, right? And so I think we have to be really careful about what are we saying? Put the most marginalized person at the center of that decision and everything becomes clear. Hey, Shri, thanks for your thoughts this morning. Really enjoyed the conversation. It's, it's something we all got to work at. Uh, TV, radio, print, um, you know, we're all rowing in the same boat, although we have different opinions, different ideas, different goals with our jobs every day. But if, if it affects one, it should affect all of us. And I, I, and I hope we work on solutions to make it better. Thanks for your time. Here, here, Greg. Thank you. Thanks so much for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. We're back with a live show tomorrow to head into Thanksgiving weekend. Give you all you need to know and keep you entertained as well. So if you can't check us out live, 530 to 9 on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto, we are indeed here for you right here where you found us. Feel free to subscribe. Feel free to leave a rating and a comment as well. It always helps. Have a great day.